to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Aaron Acuno, who is the co-founder of a website called Fakewity. Today, we're talking about social justice, racial equity, and all of the things POC-related. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I first learned about you through your website, Fakewity. So for those of us out there who have never heard of it, tell us a little bit about what this website is and how you came to think of it. Ooh, the origin story of Fakewity is, is one that came out of frustration. I was in a meeting once and it was a really big meeting. Imagine like a conference room with a typical square or U-shape. And one of the presenters was talking about a project she was working on. And she was going on about how her organization was really excited to be interviewing different people and that they were going to do all this really great work. And she kept using the word equity. And so I'm saying that going, hmm, this kind of doesn't sound right. And so I asked, I raised my hand and she called me and she's like, yeah, what's going on? And I said, so you're talking about your project and you're using the word equity, but I don't hear you talking about interviewing people of color or people who are impacted by your program and she got all hot and bothered by that and then kind of said a whole bunch of things that didn't make sense and then I went home and sulked. and so I sent an email to Heidi Schillinger who is also one of the contributors to the blog and she wrote back she's like that sounds like fake Woody and that was the beginning of the term and it's we later spun it into a blog. And so are you yourself working in a nonprofit? I am. I do. I run a, I'm very privileged and lucky to be with a small nonprofit, Southeast Seattle Education Coalition. And we work a lot with different communities in South Seattle, Southeast Seattle, to try to improve education for students and families of color. How would you define fakeity? And I know that you guys have a lot of fun charts on your site. So would love to have you talk a little bit about the stages of fakeity as well. Ooh, so the fakeity chart was the next thing that came out of, that evolved out of the term. And so one day I was bored and sitting around and I was like, what are the different, what am I annoyed with? And we came up with a chart. Or came, and the chart details different ways that fakeity, fake equity shows up in organizations and with people. It starts with everything from like, people using the term to how you can be an ally and a champion for equity. And so could you walk me through the specifics of the study? Because like I, I was reading that chart and I read a bunch of your other blog pieces and I was like, oh, this is so real, especially in the nonprofit social justice space where I think you have a mm-hmm. lot of folks who have really good intentions, but when it comes down to how it's executed or communicated more broadly, there's a lot to be desired. Yeah. So the chart starts with people who are like really not aware of race being a thing and it moves all the way up to how to be an equity champion and an ally. Mm. And uh, the other thing about it is when the chart was created out of jest and out of, again, more annoyance, but there's a lot of things that we do where sometimes we are really great at it. And there's other times where because of the project or because of different things that we're working on, we might slip backwards. Mm-hmm. And we have to adjust. So it's not meant to be a tool to shame people or to say like, wow, I really messed up and I'm going to shut down now. It's a way to kind of say, 
okay, there's things that we do, sometimes we do better than others. And there's other times where we have to also recognize we can push ourselves and we can push each other to do more, to be aware, to push our, our limits of our projects and our nonprofit work. Yeah, I, I think that this, this topic is obviously so important, especially when you are serving a diverse community. And at the same time, it's also really hard, right? Like we're all kind of on this journey and we're all at different points along that journey. So I'm just curious for yourself, I don't know if you would identify yourself as an Asian American. Yes. Also, being an Asian American person in the social justice space, I've often been really challenged with understanding my place in the conversation Mm. when it feels like such a black and white issue. And so like as an Asian person, where do you see yourself in that dialogue? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I also constantly think about and I try to figure out. What, what does that mean? I grew up in Hawaii and I grew up part of the Asian majority. And I think that really shapes who I am and how I see my place in this work. And growing up in an Asian majority, I saw Asian Americans doing a lot of really great things. I grew up, I was born during the first Asian American governor in the entire country. I grew up with Asian American teachers. So, and I grew up with Asians in leadership positions. So I really feel like I have a different, I have a strong sense of being grounded in the API community. And I tell, part of, part of what I tell people too is when I was growing up, to me, the term Asian wasn't an, a term I grew up with. We, because of the Asian prevalence in Hawaii, I grew up knowing I was Japanese American before I really identified with the Asian race group. And so having this grounding and then moving to the mainland, as we call it in Hawaii, or Seattle, I since learned what it means to be part of a pan, pan-Asian, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial community, mm-hmm. and what it also means, and I've had to really work on what does it mean to also be in solidarity with other POCs? What does it mean when I also have to realize my Asian privilege and my Asian female women privilege? And when, when can I use that to either step forward to support others, or when do I need to step back and say, not my, you know, it's like, what can I do to be an ally? What do you, what do you need for me to my friends, relatives, coworkers, relations? Mm-hmm. And how, how can I use my Asian privilege to support your cause? It's no one answer because every situation is different. And there's so much to unpack there. So what you're saying really resonates with me because I grew up in San Francisco. So similarly, mm-hmm. it was like everybody is Asian. It's like not even worth discussing because we're all Asian. And so <laughs> moving to the East Coast where Asians were not obviously as, as prevalent as they are in San Francisco, it's really informed more of an identity of being Asian American in a way that I didn't really have growing up in the Bay because it was like, I didn't have to think about it. And, you know, having been the executive director of an organization that represented largely African-American and Latinx kids, I didn't really know kind of, was it my place to be there? And, and what responsibilities do I have, as you say, to stand in solidarity with folks of color? And actually, the really shocking thing is that at one point, I realized that people didn't consider Asians people of color. And I was like, mm-hmm. Huh. That's uh-huh. such a, it literally never occurred to me that I wasn't a person of color. And so, like as an Asian person, do you see that in yourself? I mean, I, I think there's sort of an invisibility and in the ways in which Asians have been considered to be white adjacent or the model minority or mm-hmm. a wedge when convenient. 
I have seen that. And I also push back on when people say like, we're not part of the POC community just because we're Asian doesn't mean that we don't have, we're not, we don't face racism. We don't face different, different forms of social inequities. And I think we need to work with the broader community to make people remember that. It also means that there's also times where we have to stop and build the relationships to say like, why do you think that? Mm-hmm. Tell me more. What, what does it mean to you when you're saying that white and Asian data get conflated because mm-hmm. students are doing well? It's like, are they doing well because of because they are doing well, are they doing well in spite of racism, in spite of having to work twice as hard and not and doing and having those conversations. To your point about working with other folks and other people of color, how have you engaged in the conversation about both seeing Asians as people of color, but also recognizing that we do have privilege and that we should use that privilege in service of other folks who are really striving for more equity in the world? Yeah. So the organization I run is, we do a lot of cross-racial work. And I think one of the things I've realized in the past couple of years of doing this work is one is having a really good, is making it very clear who we are and why we're there. So I think people who come realize that they're going to have a different discussion. It is going to be centered on people of color collectively, cross-racially. And I've had white people that say, like, I come because I realize this is a conversation I can't have elsewhere. And on the same token, I have POCs who come who I can see them when they walk in, like, visibly relax in a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And I think they're a little bit more, they're more themselves and they can feel a different sense of community mm-hmm. because we work hard to create that space. And my team works very hard to create that space. Like we use, we're very intentional when we facilitate conversations. We use equity matters, color brave space, meeting norms. I hope that I work, I hope people realize that we're also working to create an, envi- an environment where they are welcome. You know, I have to tell you, and I also think the concept of people of color as like a monolith is really interesting to me too because even mm. within the Asian community, like what does that really even mean? Like the difference between being an East Asian person compared to being a South Asian person compared to being a Southeast Asian person is all a very different experience culturally, linguistically, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of religion. Like the only thing that we have in common is we're sort of generally in the same-ish area of the world. And, you know, likewise, when we're talking about folks of color, which generally I understand to mean by and large African-American and Latinx, even that experience is like really different. Like my husband, as an example, is half Cuban. Like the Cuban experience in the U.S. is really different than, say, the Mexican-American experience. Or we worked with a number of folks who were, you know, recent African immigrants. So the experience of a Nigerian-American is really different than a Black American who's really, you know, pulling from a, a slavery past. So I, I guess my question to you is like, how can we also understand the nuances within this term of people of color? Yeah, it's an interesting bracketing of different people. I'm not a scholar on this. So mm-hmm. this is just things that I've learned along the way. It's one experiences of people of color are all different. Uh-huh. Like you, like you just said, like, the migration stories with even within race groups is incredibly different. I was listening today, or I was listening yesterday to a podcast, All My Relations, which is a wonderful podcast put out by I, 
two or three Native American women. Mm-hmm. And in listening to that, I was like, wow, the experience, I knew this, but it reaffirmed like the experiences of a close Salish Native American is very different than mm-hmm. the Native American experience of a, somebody coming from the plains. But yet we're all grouped into these race groups. I think part of it is a way that dominant society can understand something and group things, sense of it for themselves. And on the flip side, when we can show up together as an API, an Asian community, an API community, and as people of color, we can push for things that we need differently. Mm-hmm. And, we, and there's power in numbers and there's power in the presence of having a cross-racial group say, We've all been, you know, we all need something collectively together. How do we push for this? Whether it's voting rights, whether it's fighting for funding in classrooms, whether it's employment or anything. I think what unites us is a common understanding that there, in some ways, dominant society doesn't know what to do. Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, as I was reading through your blogs and a lot of the charts that you had, I mean, what occurs to me is it's, it's really about white supremacist culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that wasn't a term that I saw a lot of in the, in the literature, but I mean, I, I assume that that's sort of like what we're talking about and that white supremacist culture is so inherent. It's almost like the air we breathe. So it's like hard to see it, mm-hmm. but it's always mm-hmm. there. Yes. And there's so many ways to unpack that. A lot of times what I've seen is when you say white supremacist, a lot of white people automatically shut down because they, they're like, that's not me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not bad. Please see me as an individual. I, I don't perpetuate racism. And what I try to hopefully communicate in some of the blog posts is like, it doesn't make you a bad person. It's the way society was built. Mm-hmm. It's the way American culture is ingrained where everything we do has been built on a notion of whiteness, the English language that we use. The originally the indigenous people, the first people use indigenous languages, but those are, those languages have been wiped out. Immigrants are, immigrants have a much harder time functioning in U.S. society because we don't have, because English is a prevalent language. There's one of my blog posts I went through and just documented 10, I think it was 10 ways, some number of ways where you know, white culture is just everywhere. It's on our money. It's in our language. It's in the way mm-hmm. we function. And I don't think we ever stop to totally interrogate that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it's, it's how we function. It's how we're able to live in a society. I was looking at the bingo cards, and we'll definitely post links to this in the show notes. But, you know, I've certainly been in meetings where we start to talk about race and somebody, usually a white person, tries to shift the conversation and be like, well, isn't it really about class or mm-hmm. isn't it really about you know, sexism or like some other topic that is a little less uncomfortable? And I don't know. I think I'm just at a point in my life where I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't feel like it's my responsibility necessarily to like educate people if they're not willing to educate themselves. I don't know. Are you, where are you on that path? I there's, it depends on the context and the meeting. And most often it comes down to my relationship with the person. If I feel like I have a relationship with the person where I, I can say like, I can push them and say like, mm, is it really about class? Or if we really look at, okay, if it is about class, let's look at who's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I'll have that conversation. If it's in a bigger meeting where I don't feel like 
I have the energy or I'm not going to be able to make an impact, I might say one thing and then be like, I did my duty. Yeah. Time, to, time for others to also step in, somebody who knows the person better. Well, it's also just like exhausting. Do you know what I mean? Like as a person of color, like to carry the emotional burden of and the emotional labor of always having to like educate people about this thing that like they are not even realizing is a thing. You're like, I, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know where to begin with that. It is exhausting. And I, this is where I also have a lot of privilege. I purposely choose to skip some of those conversations because I feel like my duty is to service my community and I can do that better if, I've, if I'm in settings where I can really be helpful. Mm-hmm. Can we go back? So here on Nonprofit Lowdown, we like to provide actionable things that people can use and do. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the ways that you said that you design meetings and the tools that you use in order to ensure that we actually are putting folks of color at the center and being conscious of our privilege. So that's a really great topic and something to think about. And I think it's something we can all do better, including me. I think one of the things that we we do at my organization is one, we use the Color Brief space and it's mm-hmm. on the Facebook blog. So I hope people will go look at it. And it's a really great meeting norms that looks at every, that reminds people to be conscious of their language, of language being used, of power dynamics in the room, and that we're ultimately there to build relationships. The things I say at the front end of almost all the meetings I facilitate, mm-hmm. especially using Color Brief spaces and remind people it is about relationships and whatever we do, Undoing racism, undoing all of that is not going to be solved in a two-hour meeting. It takes it takes much longer. It takes those deeper relationships that sustain over time to make long to make lasting systemic changes. And I think the tough thing too is that it is such a sensitive topic. I do feel like, especially given our political and, and social climate, it feels very raw. And I think, and I'll even say for myself, like. Sometimes I'm reluctant to even have the conversation out of fear that I'll say the wrong thing and it will, and that I'll be perceived differently or that somebody will, you know, be offended by something that I said that I did not intend in a certain way because I think we're living in a very hypersensitive time. And I'm wondering, do you, do you, do you have this fear? I think we, I do at times. And I think to have that fear at times is a good one. Because mm-hmm. it reminds us sometimes we don't need to talk and we should listen first. And this is where it comes back to relationships. Sometimes when I'm like, I don't know if I, I need to check, you know, I was like, I don't know about this. And in the meeting, I might stay quiet, but go check in with a friend who I can have that honest conversation with. Hey, so can you educate me on this? And right. I hope, and like, and I always try to say like, it's not your place to educate me. But I need a little help. So if you don't want to do it right now, that's totally cool. And I'll go do a little bit of homework. But if I have a good relationship with a person, they're often willing to do that. And as an example, I've had to learn a lot about disabilities justice. I, it's, it's my growth area. Really lucky that Carrie, who also blogs, has educated me a lot. She's pointed me to a lot of great resources. And so, you know, I've been, again, I feel like I'm very much on this journey. And I'm really struggling a little bit with when we consider things like norms of white supremacy, so things like perfectionism and privileging the written word and sense of urgency, I can get down and agree with all that. And I'm also like, well, especially around sense of urgency, I'm like, but 
we're in this social justice space because we feel very passionately that there must be some kind of social change that must occur. And like, we are driven by that sense of urgency. And so like, is the sense of urgency a white supremacist norm that I've somehow, I mean, I'm not asking to analyze it, but like, is this sense of urgency truly about having like, bought into a white supremacist norms or is there something there about like because we feel so strongly about the work that we absolutely like work with urgency and passion i think it's a second i think we do have to work with a sense of urgency because i work in the kids space so when mm-hmm. especially when i was working in the early learning world it's like what we do today if we don't work with a sense of urgency the kids are not are going to outgrow that the change that we need Mm-hmm. As an example, I was talking to a researcher friend and she was telling me it often takes 10 years for research to hit the field. Okay. I was like, that's, that's way too long. If you're a baby and, the, and the, your research is about infants and toddlers, the kid's going to be 10 by the time this research reaches the field. And that's ridiculous. So somebody who blogs about issues of racial equity publicly, and I assume lots of people read your blog, where do you feel like your growth areas are? That's a great question. I have many growth areas. I still need to learn a lot about race. I still have to learn a lot about different, the way race impacts so many different people of color, including the Asian community. I only know my experiences. As I mentioned, disabilities is a huge learning curve for me. I hope I'm doing better on being able to understand the experiences of, the, of disabled people. And disabled people have such different experiences as well. Mm-hmm. It's not a community. So I think everything in some ways is a growth area. And so in closing, I, and I know the term ally is thrown around and like mm-hmm. everyone uses this term, but as a person of color or as somebody who really does want to be an ally in this work like what are some actionable things that people can do in order to really show up and stand in solidarity with folks i think the number one thing is to realize where you're comfortable and where you're not comfortable and to and to figure out what does that mean like i'm very i know what spaces i'm really comfortable in i'm comfortable in my community i'm really comfortable with like the poc community and mm-hmm. to the point, sometimes I feel like, okay, I'm a little too comfortable here. And then, and realizing that has also made me realize, like, when do I really need to step out of it and show mm-hmm. up in other spaces, whether it's to learn or whether it's to be, to use my privilege to be in spaces that others don't get invited to, such as systems level meeting at school districts or in philanthropy or in with business community or health, like health leaders and to mm-hmm. say like, one, sometimes it's just to listen to hear what's going on in those conversations so I can bring it back. Also, oftentimes, push that conversation a little bit more and say, like, hey, what's, what's happening? Why, mm-hmm. you know, have you actually talked to people? Where are you getting your information? Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of kind of being a bridge between these mm-hmm. two communities. Mm-hmm. Well, Erin, I know we're out of time. I really thank you for being on the pod. I will make sure to link to all of the fine work that you're doing at Fakewitty and keep up the great work. Thank you. And I'm excited to see what's going on in the rest of the nonprofit world. (laughs) Me too, friend. Me too.